0: Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Health Disparities Podcast. I'm Rose Gonzalez, a nurse member of the Executive Steering Committee of the Movement is Life Caucus, and I will serve as your host for today's edition. I'm joined by Dr. Holly Pilsen, Assistant Professor Orthopedic Surgery at Wake Forest School of Medicine. Together, we aim to discuss topics related to Native American health, culture, and COVID-19. Thanks for joining us today. So good to be here with you today. I'm honored because I know you're part Native American, and I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Rose, and thank you so much to to you, as well as the uh, movement, as is, is Life Caucus, for having me today, it's an honor to be here to discuss these issues. And yeah, so I'd be happy to talk to you a little bit about myself. So I am a native of North Carolina and a member of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina. Uh, I'm also an orthopedic trauma surgeon at Wake Forest. I think you know, as a native person and um, as a member of a native tribe, I've sort of, and also as a female. In orthopedics, I sort of have always felt like a unicorn of sorts, always being in the the least represented group of sort of every circle I've been in. Um, and so, I think that you know, native issues are important for us to discuss because native people are sort of in one of the the least uh, represented in terms of numbers of minoritized populations in our country. So, I think it's great that Movement is Life is bringing this to the attention of, um, of their organization and followers. And I'm just um, so grateful that we have the opportunity to talk about this today.
0: And just for our listeners, uh, the Movement is Life Caucus is really a collaborative of diverse professionals, academicians, uh, organizations, faith-based organizations, all gathered together uh, multidisciplinary to address joint pain illness and bring equity to that environment. The reason, one of the reasons Holly is so special is really because she's Native American, and she's also a woman in orthopedic surgery. And that is a rare, rare find. So I'm glad I'm joined by this diamond today. Um, it's very difficult for, uh, for Natives to enter into the, the health profession. So kudos to Holly, who's maneuvered that journey and um, has joined us here. One of the things I'm really excited about talking with Holly is that the fact that I also have a background where I was married to a Native American. So my daughters have Native American. And Mm -hmm. she talks about Natives as they are invisible in today's climate. We, We see the Black Lives Matter really rise in our nation and take hold. And still today, if you ask people about Native Americans, they really don't understand. And so why don't we talk about, a little bit about the invisibility of Native Americans and, and maybe about your tribe's plight with um, recognition.
1: Yeah, that, that's great. And um, so I think you hit the nail on the head is that many Native people um, do feel invisible. I think that there are challenges uh, that go along with being sort of a part of the smallest minoritized or racial and ethnic group um, in this country specifically. Um, And the parallels really aren't that different than any other arena um, being the the least represented group in any other arena, arena. I think there's a general lack of cultural humility and understanding of Native American cultures. And I think, you know, to be honest, one of the many sort of colorful phrases that I've heard over the years Um, that brings light to the invisibility that many natives natives feel is, you know, some variation of, wow, you guys really still exist? Um, As if, you know, we are no longer a people. And, you know, I I think uh, in recent news, speaking of, uh, you know, the recent retirement of the mascot for the Washington NFL franchise, I think this just circles back around to the challenges of being one of the smallest minoritized groups. And I think, you know, when the majority of Americans have no direct contact with a native person, no native friends, coworkers, family members, et cetera, it becomes easier to sort of be complicit in degradation of native uh, people and other groups who may have been tokenized as a mascot or in other ways. Um, You know, this is not a new fight. Natives have been fighting uh, for, for this, for years, but sometimes the smallest voices in terms of numbers are often the least heard and respected. You know, you mentioned the Black Lives Movement um, and, and the other things that have recently uh, come about in our country. And I think that this speaks to the, uh, the value of, uh, of allyship and unity and coming together in some of these issues that affect us all at making real substantial change, um, in some of these areas.
0: You know, we know way back when that the government in, um, the federal government, when they agreed to exchange land and take the land from the, from the American Indians, um, and the Alaska natives, they agreed that they would, uh, cover their health. They would take care of the peoples. So let's talk a little bit about taking care of the peoples, the indigenous population. Um, how, How does that happen in this country? Well, it's
1: really quite interesting. So let me start by sort of emphasizing that there are hundreds of native tribes and communities throughout the U.S., with a great deal of uh, diversity even among tribes in terms of cultural cultures and practices, uh, et cetera. So there's uh, 573 federally recognized tribes in the U.S. and about 63 state-recognized tribes. Um, So my tribe, the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina, is a state-recognized tribe, not a federally recognized tribe. And what that means is that um, my tribe and other state recognized tribes do not get federal assistance from the federal government government, mm-hmm. as do the federally recognized tribal members and So, like you alluded to, you know the federal government is directly responsible for Native American health care based on our constitution. And numerous uh, treaties, laws, Supreme Court decisions, yes. executive orders, et cetera, uh, across the years um, are directly responsible for the health care of federally recognized Native American tribal members. You know, uh, this, the Snyder Act in uh, the early 1920s was sort of one of the first acts to sort of define um, uh, authorized funding for health care services for, for federally recognized uh, tribes. And then the um, Indian Health Care Improvement Act in the 1970s uh, sort of provided some structure structure to how that would run. And then creation of the Indian Health Services came after that, which is sort of the the overseer of Native health care administration in a federally recognized tribal community. So, so you're absolutely right in that. Um, Of all uh, of the other uh, ethnic minority groups in the United States, Native Americans of federally recognized tribes are the only group that is born with legal rights to health care in our country.
0: And and it seems like the federal government is doing a really lousy job of taking care of of Native Americans. I mean, much like... um, I would say COVID-19 has illuminated the healthcare disparities in African-American and Hispanic communities. Um, It's also illuminated the the disparities that occur in native communities. Even Mm -hmm. though many of them are not uh, located in uh, an urban area, like New York City, when it was hit hardest, you know, and there were a lot of Latinos that were hit hard and died because mm-hmm. of covid nineteen there's a different way of life in uh native communities, so I hope that we could talk about Holly two things, how covid nineteen has impacted the native communities, but secondly, a little bit more about um the communities they live in absolutely um,
1: so I think native communities are plagued with many of the same chronic diseases and comorbidities that are common to other marginalized groups in our country. Um, you know, the top two that come to mind are diabetes and heart disease are the two big ones that drive comorbidities and outcomes related to multitude of other, uh, healthcare issues. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, COVID-19 has only further eliminated the health disparities that exist in these communities. Um, you know, the, the Navajo Nation, for example, um, you know, has has the highest rates of COVID-19 per capita in the continental U.S. I mean, this even surpassed New York City, which at one time, as you mentioned, was a hotspot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's this is definitely multifactorial. Um, there are definitely opportunities uh, in terms of social determinants of health that can be improved or that have been affected. Um, by COVID-19, um, you know, for example, um, on, on some tribal reservations, you know, there's no running water. So Indian household holds on some of these tribal reservations are almost four times more likely to lack complete indoor plumbing rel- relative to other households in the U.S. Um, and so, you know, if you think about one of the primary strategies to avoid the spread of COVID-19, this frequent hand washing. Imagine how difficult this may be when you don't have access to running water um, in your home. And there's there's other things that have been shown to potentially be uh, a challenge uh, in terms of COVID nineteen spread. One of those, as uh, we've discussed before, is that many tribal communities um, there are multi generational homes. Family is very important to to Native Americans, and so there are homes that might consist of grandparents and great-grandparents and parents and children, and so it's very difficult to protect elders who might be um, more susceptible to COVID-19. It's also difficult to socially distance um, or remain, you know, six feet apart uh, or quarantine yourself if you have a multi-generational multi-gener- home um, Is more difficult in Native communities. And just like we've seen in some of our other non-English speaking communities in the U.S., you know, there are indigenous communities that households uh, that are non-English speaking have been shown to be more effective with COVID-19. So this, I think, ties into health literacy Um, And some of the importance about public health dissemination in our indigenous communities, um, just as in our other some of our other non-English speaking communities that have played a role in COVID-19. So these are just a few examples of ways in which COVID-19 has significantly impacted Native communities.
0: Wow. Wow. And I was doing some reading on um, trying to prepare for this podcast And one of the things that struck me was, exactly as you pointed out, a third of the Navajo homes are deficient in plumbing and kitchen facilities and do not have bedrooms. So like you said, how are we going to wash our hands, number one? How are we going to socially distance when we don't have bedrooms, separate bedrooms? It's not like you're living in a multi floor house or whatever or have rooms you're living together but living together is something that's valued and and the other thing that you mentioned was the elders are valued in the native community they are the storytellers they are the keeper of the culture and the traditions and so they're trying to protect them and how difficult it must be for all of them to Try to protect them in the environment that they live in, and uh, the lack of water and uh, social distancing really has hurt them. What do you think, or what have you learned about um, the Indian health system and, and their incapability of really? They should have stellar healthcare. The federal government is is responsible. Is it? <laughs> is, what? What is it? What is lacking? Well, I, I think the biggest
1: thing uh, that's most obvious in the Indian Health Service specifically is it's just grossly underfunded. Um, you know, every year Congress appropriates funds to the Indian Health Service to fulfill all the trust responsibilities, to provide health care services for Native people and federally recognized tribes. But, um, you know, for example, in 2014, the Indian Health Service per capita expenditure for patient health services was only three thousand one hundred and seven dollars, compared to eight thousand dollars per person for healthcare spending nationally. So that's less than half the amount of money that the Indian Health Service per capita was um, was given to spend on Indian health services and. Uh, establishment of clinics and hospitals and just just basic health care to native populations less than half per person um, for healthcare care spending compared to national to national averages and so I think therein lies the primary problem is that uh, there 's only so much you can do with the little bit of money that the Indian Health Service is allowed from the federal government.
0: The federal government hasn 't kept up with funding. Um, and responsibility of Congress. And it's almost like they deliberately um, don't honor the treaties, don't honor the agreements, and certainly appear to be underfunding where the cost of healthcare has risen. They're certainly not keeping up with providing those services among the indigenous populations and keeping up with the funding. So that's horrible. So. Turning to COVID, as you said, COVID illuminates these issues. Mm-hmm. They they already have so many comorbid conditions. You started to talk about them, mm-hmm. uh, the diabetes. Um, mm-hmm. Why don't you help us understand better the other some of the other um, comorbid conditions that they have?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think diabetes and heart disease is definitely are definitely the two bigger ones. Um, There's also a higher prevalence of liver disease um, and some cancers in some Native communities. Um, And I think, you know, going back to the sort of uh, Indian Health Service piece and being underfunded, I think in in many of these communities, the issue um, has been the hospitals and clinics' ability to take on patients with COVID-19 in these communities has just been um abysmal. You know, there many of these uh Indian Health Service run hospitals do not have intensive care units. Uh they're very small. And so they have required um, Native people to have to seek or be transferred to facilities outside of their communities, um, hours and hours and hours away from their home communities and away from family. Um, and so that has put you know a significant strain on the system um, that's already strained and underfunded. But also, it's been really difficult for Native communities who are, um, you know, like I said, very value family and uh, live in multi generational homes to sort of figure out how to best get their family members the care they need um, during this pandemic. And I think that's attributed to some of the. Some of the higher rates of COVID nineteen cases as well as deaths.
0: My understanding is there is a disproportionate amount of uh, deaths within that community, and probably citing what you said, which is takes longer to get to some place that has an ICU because Indian Health Service they're really a primary care provider, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think they try mm-hmm. to take care of the basic. Daily uh, family care, you know, holistic kind of, and many of them weave traditional um, medicine with their with uh, our, our regular medical system, but they they don't have access to, like you said, the ICU beds or the, the skilled the skilled providers at, at times to to deal with these conditions that are coming their way. So this, this is a a terrible time in the native communities. I mean, decimated initially, here's another mm-hmm. virus coming in mm-hmm. to, that's really disproportionately impacting them. I, I, I read that native Americans are being infected in high numbers in urban areas, such as Salt Lake city, Seattle, San Jose. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they can't get access to the care. So, you know, that, that's, that's an important piece to understand. So it's multiple. There's there so many reasons why they're being disproportionately impacted by this disease.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So how can we move forward, I think, you know, um, with, with um, this knowledge, Holly, how can we kind of because um, I'm feeling kind of really depressed about what's going on in Native communities. And I really mm-hmm. would like to demonstrate also, you know, mm-hmm. I, um, I mean, I, I just don't understand how, how our country has treaties and an obligation um, to conserve Indian health. And here we are in the midst of a pandemic and they're being disproportionately impacted. That doesn't seem right to me. Well, I think that,
1: you know, despite all of these many challenges, which do and should, I think, weigh very heavily on us, um, I think, you know, Native people are a beautiful and a resilient people, um, you know, and there's a lot to learn about the importance of cultural identity and its importance to Native identity, and I think, you know, despite the many numbers of different tribes and different cultural practices and beliefs that there are some very common um, beliefs that are woven through the culture of being a native person. And and those are, are, you know, deep respect for the fellow man, deep respect for the land and the earth. And I think those are principles that we can learn from native people um, as we try to, to address some of the injustices and things of our present day. Um, And I think a lot of this, you know, when we think about, well, what can we do? What can we do about these things? A lot of it goes back to the idea of allyship, right? And coming together in unity to address uh, issues as we see them, um, bringing more awareness to the challenges that exist in Native communities and the ways in which visibility and, allyship can have tremendous traction and sort of gaining recognition and advancement um you know i think we we were talking recently about how um you know many people were not aware of the uh the celebration of juneteenth until recently when you know it's become um it's gotten more visibility Mm -hmm. um and i think you know Um, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, so to speak. And right now there's a lot of squeaky wheels that are getting a lot of grease and it's great for activism and allyship. And I think that once those uh, wheels are greased, so to speak, they can sort of accelerate some of the momentum of activism and change that's been silenced and ignored in other communities as we're seeing. Um, And, you know, we all have passions and causes that are near and dear to us. And Some of them are born out of motivation um, to sort of right the wrongs that directly affect us and those that we know and love. But I also think we should challenge ourselves to sort of take a step forward and look outside of the issues that directly affect us to those issues that affect our fellow man, right? If you want and expect someone else to be an active bystander for you, then you should also take the initiative to be an active bystander for others. So, you know, pick an issue or a plight that doesn't directly affect you and learn to understand the struggles of others and the right for reform. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if that means that you're an able-bodied person and you're championing and being a voice for the disabled, if it means that you're a black or brown person and you're a voice for other disparaged racial and ethnic groups, um, I think those are the ways that we can sort of Champion the issues that affect those around us,
0: you know some of the things that um, that I've seen lately where um, the natives were you know advocating for themselves, they were maintaining their the, the their ability to uh, oversee their border to understand who can come in and who can't come in and I think some of these Things are challenging in their culture. They are a culture that is not about the me or I. It's about the we. It's about the community. What do we need to do about the community? Which I always found to be very beautiful. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: the respect for Mother Nature. Mm
1: -hmm. The
0: the respect for don't take from nature more than you need, more than you use. Mm -hmm. And always Mm -hmm. give thanks back to Mother Earth, um, uh, when you do take something from Mother Earth and be grateful for it. So the respect for the elders, their storytelling tradition, their their celebrations, which encompass everyone. Everyone has a role to play in the celebrations that they have, right from the youngest Mm -hmm. to the key, the drummers and the dancers. Mm to the the uh the elders who know the songs to pass them down in the languages and and one of the things i want to say about the languages and and uh bring it back to a little bit to covid is they learn that they they have an oral tradition right so the history is passed down orally from generation to generation Mm -hmm. and um the information that was coming out from COVID-19 was not in their traditional languages. Mm -hmm. So not only are individuals isolated because they live in these rural communities, but they're also impoverished communities, very impoverished Mm -hmm. communities without indoor plumbing or bedrooms or whatever. And they're not even communicating with them in their native tongue. So this virus is coming through with the lack of information and maybe sometimes access to information because if you don't have running water, you probably don't have internet, okay? <laughs> you know, so isolation and then lack of resources, but they, they work hard to maintain the community and support one another. And I, I, one of the interesting pieces I, I read was that everybody was an auntie or uncle you know, and they care for their aunties and uncles and grandparents. So everyone was one big community trying to help the Mm -hmm. other individuals in the community. And that to me is a beautiful thing. And as they respect each other, we have much to learn from the native culture and much Mm -hmm. that we should adopt in, in how we move forward with change. I know there's a, a lack of, uh, a small number of uh, Native Americans in uh, the health professions, what do you think that, uh, people are doing to try to encourage more Native Americans to come into the health professions? Yeah, so
1: I think there are um, fantastic pipeline programs that are uh, encouraging young and native people to consider careers in health care. Um, there are some federally funded programs through the Indian health service that do provide some scholarship opportunity for native people to pursue healthcare careers and also work in native communities. Um, and it's sort of uh, in a type of um, a scholarship where uh, students can, can attend um, uh, health professional school, and then pay back their scholarship by working in sort of a service commitment type role in native community communities. There are um, you know groups such as the Association of American Indian Physicians, that is the national organization of uh, Native American physicians that uh, champion the um, the health care um, and and fostering. Uh, also, interest in in uh, young Native peoples' interest in becoming physicians, um, and so there's lots lots of things that are are going on to sort of encourage uh, Native people to consider fields in healthcare. Um, and I think absolutely in the Indian Health Service, um, increasing funding would definitely help that effort even more so. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, but like we alluded to earlier, the Indian health services, um, main focus is on, um, sort of primary care type areas and prevention and, um, basic healthcare needs. And there's a lack of access to, um, specialists. Um, when people need specialists, they have to go outside typically of the Indian healthcare system. And there's very, um, strict sort of criteria on where they can go and who they can see. Um, And so I think also that while we do need more primary care providers in these communities, I think that we also need specialists um, in these communities as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, yeah. It sounds like we've got, we have primary care access but specialists become an issue and would trust become an issue? Oh,
1: absolutely! I trust is an absolutely an issue. Um, you know, for obvious reasons, many many minoritized communities have uh, a lack of trust um, in the healthcare system for for very understandable reasons. And when you do have to leave your home community, uh, leave the you know the the opportunities to be treated by those members of your tribe to go into a community that you're. Um, not familiar with and be treated by someone that you aren't sure if you can trust. That's absolutely a
0: big uh, reason that some people don't choose not to seek care outside of these communities. So I'm a Latina woman who went into nursing and, you know, Hispanics are, there's a small number of them in nursing. And we also have a Native American uh, Nurses Association. I always felt like I would count the room as a Latina woman and say, oh geez, guess what? I'm the Highlander in the group. There can be only one Latina in this group and always felt that sometimes the way I looked at things because of my ethnicity and culture, because even though I grew up in the South Bronx, the household could have been in Puerto Rico. We spoke Spanish, (laughs) we cooked Spanish food. And so I was always, I always felt different in that. And, and I felt really isolated in many ways going through the nursing program. But what advice mm-hmm. would you give to young natives who come in? Because the journey's tough as it is. The health professions mm-hmm. are not easy. Yeah,
1: so that, that's a great point. And I, and I totally agree with you. So, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, um, you know, I've always sort of been the unicorn. I've never... I've never met, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm the only orthopedic surgeon um, from my tribe of over 50,000 members, and I've never met another female uh, Native American orthopedic surgeon. If if you're out there, please contact me. I'd love to meet you. <laughs> but um, I, so I would say a couple things. Uh, for one, I would say, you know, being from a very uh, small group, um, and if it's ethnicity or race or sexual orientation or, or whatever that is, I think you, um, if you if you wait around to find a mentor who looks like you, you're probably going to be waiting forever. So I think you have to be somewhat courageous to step out and say and seek mentorship from others who may not look like you. Um, and that's sort of what I had to do. Um, you know, growing up, there was no one. Um, once I really discovered that I wanted to be a physician and I wanted to go into orthopedic surgery, there was no one who looked like me who did those things. And so I had to seek mentorship from those who didn't look like me. And I had to sort of take a step out of my comfort zone and say, you know, this is something I really want to do. And I'm going to ask someone who they don't look like me, but maybe if I ask them, they'll let me shadow them and they'll let me uh, get a glimpse into what into what their life is like and, and how they take care of patients. And they were absolutely happy to do that. Um, and so, you know, also I think, you know, just kind of keeping in mind that sometimes you have to step outside of your comfort zone to, to pursue the things that you're passionate about. And, um, that's no different in medicine. I think, you know, many, many native people come from communities that, um, where they are the majority, They're, they come from exclusive native communities. Um, and, you know, needing to leave those communities to attend college, to attend medical school and residencies, they are going to be absolutely in the minority. Um, in, uh, in the 2019, 2020 um, data from the AAMC, um, American Indian and Alaskan natives only made up uh 0.2% of matriculants to medical school. Wow. Um and I think as you progress along, you know, into orthopedics, for example, in 2019, um Native Americans and Alaskan natives um again only made up 0.2% of active residents in orthopedic wow. surgery in 2019. So um, the pool doesn't get any bigger as you progress along. And so you have to be uh, become comfortable in who you are, um, realizing that there's nothing about who you are and your identity that uh, makes it impossible for you to do these things. It may just mean that you might have to be the first one or you might have to be one of the few ones um, to do it. And stepping outside of your comfort zone, I think, is is one of the first things I would encourage you to do. And then seeking, not being afraid to seek mentorship from others who may not look like you. Right. Um, and then also not forgetting that you have to sort of reach back and mentor
0: those who are behind you. Well, I think that's um, wonderful advice. I think I really appreciated that. And I hope our listeners appreciated that too, because I think the journey is hard. Medical school alone um, individuals who want to pursue those careers who find themselves to be uh, the one the only one or a, a one of the few in, in a vast sea of you know others um, to try to be successful and go back and and help their communities I think this has been uh, a really enlightening discussion with you Holly I appreciate that you have uh, joined us here today to talk about uh, COVID nineteen in Native American communities, health professions. Are there any last kind of thoughts you want to share with us as we come to a close on this discussion?
1: Yeah, I, I just again want to thank you, Rose, and thank the Movement of His Life Caucus. Um, I think I shared with you before that I was only recently, um, actually last year, introduced to the Movement of His Life Caucus uh, from by Dr. Bonnie Simpson Mason. And, um, it has just been an amazing year of getting connected with, um, with the fantastic members of this group and following along the podcast, uh, since I attended the movement of life caucus last year. And I think this is just a fantastic organization that is, um, is shedding light on all of the many areas in our country that, um, Especially muscu- musculoskeletal health is affected by, and the disparities that exist, and and really taking action to champion championing the uh, the issues and Medicare reform and so many others. Um, and so, I just want to again thank you, thank the Movement is Life Caucus, and um, thank you for allowing me to to also shed light today on some of the the issues affecting Native communities. And I hope that this has uh, been educational and informative, and that uh, listeners feel that they have some um, additional ways in which they can be a voice for our native um, members of our country.
0: Thank you, Holly. And um, for those uh, individuals who who want to provides some financial support to um, Native communities. There is a website called nativepartnership.org. They have a Native Relief Fund that is providing funding for individuals on the reservations dealing with COVID-19. I urge you to visit that website. I, I think I wanna urge our listeners to read up on history and understand the history of our nation and understand you know, the nation's responsibility to the indigenous communities and maybe help us advocate for increased funding for the Indian Health Service and um, mm-hmm. and for the health care and, and, and for housing and support and plumbing for the indigenous populations. Um, they're part of our, they're such a, they are a history, they are a beginning and mm-hmm. we need to honor them. And so as we move forward with Uh, the recognition that equity is is an uphill climb for all communities. Mm -hmm. Indigenous communities are in great need of our support. I want to thank you, Dr. Pilsen, for joining us today. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us on this edition of the Health Disparities Podcast. We hope you find this This discussion today was thought provoking and I hope it urges you to learn more, as I said about our Native American history, history of Indian health service, responsibility for indigenous populations, and also maybe inspired by some of their values and cultures and and traditions. And from all of us here at Movement is Life and the Health Disparities podcast, we want you to stay safe, stay well, and we hope you join us again soon. Thank you, Dr. Pilsen. Thank you Thank all. Thank you. Till the next time. Take care, all. Bye-bye.